I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning as we conclude this series called Beginnings of Good and Evil, Life and Death, Sin and Salvation. And we are at the Tower of Babel today where we're going to see how um, the first one world order was thwarted by God. To kind of form a conclusion to this series and also an introduction to this message, I want to introduce you to three men who lived in the 1800s who continue to shape your life. Your life and your thinking are different because these three men lived and thought the way they did. The first one is Charles Darwin. Each of these men, by the way, have in various ways denied what's going on in Genesis 1 through 11. Darwin taught that all that exists is the product of time plus chance, as opposed to what Genesis 1 to 11 teaches, which is all that exists was created by an infinite personal God. Taken to its extreme, all that exists is the product of time plus chance, leads to the fact that there is no definitive absolute of right and wrong, and you can do whatever you want to. In fact, if you were to study the diatribes of various of these mass shooters over the years, you will see that they have imbibed deeply of Darwinism, this thought that everything that exists is the product of time plus chance and they can do whatever they wish to do. The second person that I want to introduce you to is Sigmund Freud. Um, he tramples on the things that, were ta- that are taught in Genesis 1 to 11 relating to marriage and siblings and parents and the judgment of God. But mostly, he is trampling on the problem and the nature of sin. If you've ever had a friend or family member who's gone to a secular Freudian psychologist and you know that they're doing wrong and you're hoping that their counselor will tell them you're doing wrong, you need to stop what you're doing and turn the other direction. And then you're frustrated by the fact that that counselor is simply telling them, stop feeling guilty and enjoy your life. That counselor is teaching them Freud. Because Freud tells us that the problems of the soul are not due to sin and they can be solved apart from God as opposed to what Genesis 1 through 11 teaches, which is the problems of the soul can all be traced to the effects of sin and can only be solved by the Creator, and as the rest of the Bible teaches, made known through God's Son, Jesus Christ. A third person from the 1800s who continues to shape our world today is Karl Marx, who said that the problems of society are due to the idea of God. We just got to get rid of the very idea of God. And and the problems of society are also due to the domination of ruling classes. And when we all, as the world, when we all agree to this, 
there will be social and economic justice with a unified world. This is why Marxists, through history, are ruthless, murdering millions of people, because in order to get 100% agreement on their ideology, they have to get rid of people who stubbornly refuse to knuckle under. The verses of Genesis 1 through chapters 1, uh, the scripture in Genesis 1 through 11 tells us that the problems of society are due to human rebellion to the righteous decrees of God. A unified world is only going to come when Jesus Christ returns to earth. These are three men whose thinking in the 1800s has shaped our own here in the 21st century. And it is all related to the important value of the truthfulness of Genesis 1 through 11. It is my contention that if you accept what the Bible teaches in Genesis 1 through 11, you will not have very many problems believing and understanding and accepting the teachings of the rest of the Bible. And if you have questions and doubts and challenges about Genesis 1 through 11, you will continue to have questions and doubts and challenges through the remainder of Scripture. Well, with that introduction, let's open our Bibles and stand for the reading of Scripture as we look at this first one world order, Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. And they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Please have a seat. In the first few verses of this chapter, we see that human beings are tempted to kingdom build for themselves and to do so without God. It's just part of the nature of our sinfulness. <clears throat> After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, everything became a self-centered picture. The idea of building a kingdom for yourself. So, Cain kills Abel. The world before the flood was only evil all the time, and so God destroyed the world with a flood and, and saved Noah and his family, his three sons and their wives. And then immediately after that, there's kingdom building that leads to terrible stuff. And now here we are with, in chapter 11, everybody speaking one language 
everybody unified, and they're going to do it all without God. That's the issue. They're going to do it without God. And so they come up with some makeshift materials. You'll notice they do it with bricks instead of stone, bitumen for mortar instead of real concrete. They're uh, using kind of secondarily good materials. Compared to the beauty and symmetry of creation, this project is a fifth and sixth boys VBS project, okay? But you'll notice this plaintive desire for unity and peace on the part of the world. And you see it still today. To be able to have unity and peace in the world apart from God. In some, in some ways, people are saying even today, what we want is world unity and world peace. And if we have to get rid of God in order to do it, let's get rid of God. That, that's the idea here at, uh, at Babel. Unity and peace. It, it's, it's noted here in this plaintive um, desire in verse 3. Come, let us, they say. And then verse 4, they say again, come, let us build. Now, we might think that unity and peace in the world is a good thing, right? I mean, who's against unity and peace? <laughs> but unity and peace for the glory of man is not good. Unity and peace apart from the glory of God is not good. Jesus said as much in Luke chapter 12. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? This is the Prince of Peace speaking. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there'll be five divided, three against two, two against three, they'll be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That is, what Jesus is saying is that when you have people in the same family, some of whom are pursuing the glory of God and some of whom are pursuing glory for themselves, that that's going to lead to division. And trying to have unity and peace is not an ultimate good unless the unity and peace is all in seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ. That's why we have it as the focus of our church. That's the only basis for unity. And what's going on here in Genesis 11 is the basis of unity is, hey, look at what great people we are. Let's build for ourselves. See, I kingdom building for themselves and to do it without God. Now, why would people do this? Why do people kingdom build for themselves and ignore God, keep God completely out of the picture? Why do people do that? Look at verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The problem is one of orientation. Human beings, since the time Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, have now placed themselves at the center of the universe. When in fact, and then they relate everything around them to themselves. That's what it means to kingdom build for yourself. You are the center 
as opposed to the biblical picture, which is God is the center and everything relates to Him. Here's something crazy. Even people who think that they love and obey God can be kingdom building for themselves. And they even have God as one of the things that's supposed to fall into line in according to their will. <laughs> that's how weird this thing can get messed up. In fact, I would suggest to you that many of the prosperity teachers today do exactly that, right? They're putting themselves at the center of the universe, and you can actually, by your words, make God do stuff for you. It's horrific, right? The reasons for such kingdom building then, if you look at verse 4, is let us make a name for ourselves. They want to be somebody, the significance, personal and corporate significance. And it's very self-centered, isn't it? Look at all of the, let us, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. You know, a number of years ago, 1933 in fact, uh, humanists, people who did not believe in God, made a manifesto to lay out their vision for peace and unity on earth. It was revised then in 1973, 40 years later, to be able to become, have, be a more positive statement of their vision for the world. And there was one very famous sentence that came out of that second humanist manifesto, is this one. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. That is exactly what you have here at the Tower of Babel. Come, let us build, that we may make a name for ourselves, you see. People long to be important. It's not all wrong, but making a name for yourself seems like that's a little self-centered, isn't it? We can see that, by the way, and uh, you know, we're going through graduations, and you might go to a graduation ceremony, and there's 327 names, and you're just like, you know, until you get to the name of your grandson or granddaughter or son or daughter or nephew or niece or whatever. Then you're, you're really focused when they get to that name, right? It's a description in a microcosm of how we are easily focused on our own things. We, don't equally celebrate all 327 graduates, right? So it's not all bad. But when we do it without God, that's when it is a horrific idolatry. <coughs> Furthermore, notice in verse 4, it says that they're worried about something. They are kingdom building for themselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They don't want to move. They want to build their own thing and be happy, and if God's there, maybe he can just bless what they're doing, but they're the center of the universe, they're the king of their world. And we don't want to move, we want to stay where we're at, and we want to be happy here. <laughs> what did God say in Genesis 1.28? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, that is, take good stewardship of it. What did he say in Genesis chapter 9? I think it's about verse 7, where he said it like four times, right? He goes, uh, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. The Tower of Babel is an attempt to say to God, we're not going to do what you say. 
we're going to stay right close to home and we're not moving. Now, that human propensity still exists. And I'm going to show you a map here that, that reveals that. It's not a statement of indictment of anything. I'm not criticizing this. I'm just noting that the desire not to change is strong in all of us. So this is a map of the United States with your median distance from your mother. In the Midwest here, the median distance of people from their mothers is 14 miles. Just south of us, it's six. Out west, of course, where there's distances that are greater, it's 44 in the Rocky Mountain states on the west coast, 26 miles. But the point is, the, the median of the United States of distance from your mother is 18 miles. That's way closer than I thought it would be, you know? And it describes, doesn't it, this, this desire to kind of stay together. People resist being scattered. And being scattered involves risk and change and a high percentage of failure. But from the standpoint of the creation mandate, God says, be fruitful, fill the earth, go out there. By the way, this whole thing of how chapter changes and change can happen for us is why, at least one of the reasons why, we cry at graduations and weddings. Because we know that change is in the offing and moving may accompany that. It's why moving is hard. It's why we are afraid of immigrants. It's why we don't immediately accept racial or cultural differences. It's also why immigrants and refugees are such risk-taking people. Think about it. Uh, An immigrant or a refugee is leaving behind everything that he knows and goes through unbelievable change in order to get to another place. And in the United States, as a nation of immigrants, this capacity for change is actually more baked into our just cultural thinking than perhaps any other people, which is why if you were to study moving patterns, the United States is pretty high on the moving around kind of scale. The point is that here at Babel, they were expressing the very same thing, only doing it without God and saying, we're just going to stick together and we're not moving no matter what. Now, God's always going to frustrate human kingdom building. He always will. Because it denies God his glory and because it thwarts God's purpose for human beings. Whenever we kingdom build for ourselves, it's denying God his glory. And it also thwarts God's purpose, not just for ourselves, but for others. And so look what happens. Verse 5, God came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. He came down not as a rival, not as a rival God. He came down as a creator with a father's concern. And so what happens here is that, of course, Languages get confused and people naturally get dispersed according to their language and culture. And the rest of the Bible is an amazing story, especially the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament, here's what happens. 
people are formed into various nations and languages, and God chooses one of the nations through which he's going to build his kingdom. If it were not for Babel, let's just do a little thought experiment, and let's say that the Tower of Babel never happened. It was going to happen, but let's just say that it didn't, okay, as a thought experiment. If it didn't happen, the choosing of one nation would not have been necessary. The Genesis 11 failure leads to God's initiating choice and grace in selecting Abraham and the people of Israel. Not because there's something special about Abraham and the people of Israel. He chose them, the Bible says, because he chose them. Because he's going to deal with one nation in order to bless the world. In fact, uh, Moses comments, on the, comments uh, about this in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, when he says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, that's a reference to Babel, right? He spread them out. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So the idea is that there's something special in the heart of God about dealing with one nation in order to bless the world. And this actually, this idea of God coming down happens again and again in the Bible. So God comes down at Babel and thwarts this, but then what happens in, 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 in the incarnation at Bethlehem? God comes down in the in God the Son, Jesus comes down. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 4. What does it mean that he ascended except that he also first descended to the lower regions, that is the earth? Jesus came down to rescue us. And then what happened at Acts chapter 2? God comes down. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove upon these disciples and, and amazing things develop, the church begins to exist. So God came down at Babel. God came down at the incarnation of Christ. God comes down at Pentecost and the mission of the church. And in Revelation 21, which we're going to see in a moment, now the dwelling place of God is with man. He doesn't just come down to visit. He comes down to stay. Verse 6, God knows that this action to stick together with one world government and religious system would be only the beginning of horrible apostasies. Now, we like to think of this idea of unity and peace together as a, a great good. In fact, John Lennon described it, right, in his, in his song, Imagine. Imagine all the people living life and doing wonderful things and imagine there's no religion, you know, all of that. That's Babel. That's the Babel hope. But God knows that this only is the beginning of horrible apostasies. This is why evil and evil people, although they may experience years of success, can never triumph. If you're in a situation where you see evil happening, just know this, it may last a long time. We don't know how long evil will last, but we know that evil will not triumph. It won't. God will always stop it. Now, that doesn't mean individuals won't get hurt in the process, but God's going to put an end to evil. 
And so God says in verse 7, let's go down. I love that phrase. Do you see the plural there? Come, let us go down. It reminds you of Genesis 1, right? Come, let us make man in our image. The plurality of God at work. Given some New Testament revelation, what we can say is that the Trinity is at work to protect the human race against itself. The human race is trying to develop unity and peace apart from God. God says, no, I got to help you. And he comes down. Let us go down. Let us go down. Right? The gathering of the Trinity is a far more powerful gathering than all that mankind can offer against it. So what does God do? Verse 8. Oh, verse 7, let us go down, confuse their language so they might not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over all the face of the earth. They left off building the city. It was called Babel, which means confused, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Um, God establishes nations, languages, tribes, peoples with a distinct Places, distinct lands, languages, and people. Nationalism is God's appropriate discipline on unruly humanity. That's God's plan to make the nations. I I want you to think about this for a moment. Here you are building this big ziggurat thing, this big tower, and you're building it with a guy next to you. And the next morning you get up and you're going to start your work and the guy says to you, And you go, what? What did you just say? And he doesn't know what you said when you said, what did you just say? <laughs> You're completely confused. And so what do you do? You try to find other people around you who can speak your language. And that's how the peoples are dispersed. And today... Did you know there are over 6,000 languages? And think of the wonder of language for a moment. Think about it. So I am exhaling air and I'm moving my lips and my tongue in such a way that words are coming out that are hitting your ears and processed in your brain so that you're understanding what I'm saying. That's miraculous. That's crazy good. And, you know, sometimes we think of, you know, 6,000 languages. Well, what about these people that live in the Stone Age? They don't even have their language put into writing, you know. Surely they have like a primitive language. It's kind of basic, maybe kind of a rudimentary language. Wrong. Some of those languages are among the most complex linguistically of all the languages. And in fact, there is no language that doesn't have all the complexities required to express every thought. Every language can do it. (coughs) It's unbelievable. It's It's amazing what God has done. Six, over 6,000 such languages today. Note that the people are scattered They are confused. Look at verse 7. Confuse their language. Verse 9. The Lord confused the language of all the earth. In fact, there is this 
confuse, disperse, confuse, disperse. The confusion causes their lang- the, them to disperse themselves. Verse 7, let's confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them. Verse 9, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language and from there the Lord dispersed them. Confused, dispersed, confused, dispersed. I would imagine that the people who were building the Tower of Babel could have thought of some possible ways in which their project could not work. You know, they could have thought of a few things that could have gotten in the way of their, of their, of their plan. <clears throat> they could never have imagined that this was the way that their plans would be thwarted, that God would confuse their languages. Couldn't have conceived of it. And so the half-built city is a monument to the glory of humans without God. How do, we, uh, how do we apply this? There's actually seven things that I want to share with you by way of application. They will be faster than you think. First, God has decisive control in the affairs of the human race. God has decisive control in the affairs of the human race. You might think, oh man, things are going horrible. They may be going horrible in your life personally. They may be going horrible as you think about politics, as you think about your workplace. But understand this, God has decisive control in the affairs of the human race. And that's a comfort to us. We should take a trust in that. Consider all of the ways in which God expresses his decisive control. And this is just a sampling. He's in control, decisive control, of kings and rulers. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Lord has decisive control in the affairs of all human beings. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way. You know, you can make your own plans, but the Lord establishes his steps. The Lord has decisive control in the affairs of even plans that we make. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You think, I'm going to do this and this and this and this, and I'm then this and then this. It's not wrong to plan, but just know it's all in the hand of God. And then this remarkably comforting verse from Ephesians 1.11, God has decisive control in the affairs of everything. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has decisive control in the affairs of the human race. Now, a second thing that we could say is that nationalism is an insuperable fact that people will never, ever escape. Nations are born and die, of course, but the notion of a one-world government is not only undesirable, it is ultimately impossible. Thirdly, man on his own without God is a glorious creature, but doomed to failure and meaninglessness. As we look at people, we can take glory in their magnificent accomplishments, in all the things that they are and do, but apart from God, they're doomed to meaninglessness. 
Number four, apart from God, our own nation, along with every other nation, is doomed to failure. There are two mottos that the United States has. One is e pluribus unum, which means it's Latin for out of many, one. Out of the many states of the union, we have one nation. But to have e pluribus unum, out of many, one, without God, is simply another form of building of a tower of Babel that God will confuse to collapse. So the only way you have e pluribus unum is if you also have in God we trust. You have to have the two together. Now, I mentioned that the Bible has some allusions to the Tower of Babel. And I want to talk about one of them now in this fifth application. Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, was the beginning of what I term the great reversal of Babel. Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church, was the great reversal, the beginning of the great reversal of the Tower of Babel. Look at Acts chapter 2. We looked at this in our study in Acts. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. We mentioned when we were in that series, it may be that part, at least part of the gift was the gift of ears. That the, that the disciples were speaking one language, but somehow it got heard in all these different languages, right? I'm going to call this, whether it's a one language that everybody ends up hearing in their own or speaking in various languages, it is the beginning of a great reversal of the Tower of Babel, a unity around Jesus Christ rather than the unity and peace of human beings on their own kingdom building. Now there's coming a one world government promised in Revelation 18 that God will destroy. It's called Babylon for her sins are heaped high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. So even in the end times, there's going to be this huge attempt to have unity and peace apart from God that God will destroy. <coughs> Finally, God is going to reunite the peoples of the earth. The basis of that unity is going to be the lordship of Christ, not human glory. The Eden problem of sin is conquered by Christ at the cross. The Babel problem of the confusion of languages is solved in part at Pentecost, and ultimately it is solved in the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man is not going to build a way for God to come down with some tower. God instead is going to bring the holy city of the new Jerusalem down out of heaven with open gates to unite the nations and God will live with us. Revelation 21. 
He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is, is the lamb. And by its light will the nations walk. And here's an interesting phrase. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There'll be no night there. Again, this repeated phrase. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. What's going on here? It is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Human beings have an amazing glory. And God created even greater glory by creating all the languages and tribes and peoples and the nations. But one day there's coming a great reversal where God's going to bring them all into his city and all their glory is going to be brought into the city in this beautiful way in which we see people from every tribe and language and people and nation worshiping the Lamb of God. Notice the addition there in verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is, if you want to be a part of this big party that's going to go on forever, that's about the white-hot worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and the magnificence of His glory and our bringing whatever glories that our nation and our uh, languages and peoples bring to Him, okay, you want to be a part of that, here's what you need to do. You need to say, oh God, I'm a broken, messed up person. I'm a sinner in need of salvation. Lord Jesus, you died on the cross for me. I trust what you did at that cross to forgive me of my sin. And I want to be a part of your kingdom forever. I want to have meaning like I've never known it before. A life apart from you has no meaning and it's empty and it's vain and things are falling apart and I need you. That's how you know your name is in the book of life. God speaks through the prophet Zephaniah, at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. One of the great questions is, in the kingdom of God, the future glory, the new creation, will we all speak one language, or we all speak our different languages, but we'll all understand each other? I happen to think it's the latter. I think we'll all be speaking separate languages, but that we'll all understand each other, which is quite a fun thought. But it may be that we're all speaking one language. I heard one person say once, yeah, we'll all speak one language, English. <laughs> well, you're a little self-centered there. <laughs> I leave you to debate in your small group whether we will speak only one language or whether it'll be a whole bunch of languages that we'll all understand. Either way, the promise of Zephaniah 3.9 will come true. And now we're back to the verses we read at the beginning of our message, or at the beginning of our service. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, 
for you were slain. They're talking to Jesus, these four living creatures. They're speaking to Jesus. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Babel reversed. And you've made them to be a kingdom, only one, with one king. And priests, every one of them a priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This world is not our home. We may feel like this world is falling apart. Here's a hint for you. It is. It's fallen apart. But it always has been. Maybe we've just been ignoring the signs. But the blessing of Babel will be realized. All these different cultures, all these different peoples gathered together around the white-hot worship of God, the blessing of Babel will be realized and the curse of Babel will be erased. It will be reversed at the throne of God. You know, when the Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping died, the other major leader of China Mao Zedong said about Deng, he said, he has gone to meet Marx. Think about what a shallow thought that is in a godless world, in a godless culture where you don't have any meaning. They still have to have some kind of eschatology, some kind of doctrine of last things. And the best they can come up with is you get to go meet Karl Marx. (laughs) I I have to confess, that takes a lot more faith than to believe that there's a real Savior who died for me. You don't go to meet Marx, but ultimately that's the best you can hope for apart from the Christian gospel. You're just having a hopefulness that somehow it might work out in the end versus the certainty of salvation and the glory of God where we will one day say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and honor and glory and strength and blessing. Those are your options. I urge you, fall at the feet of him who has loved you with an everlasting love and has died to save you and has risen again to take you to be with him and even now is preparing a place for you. Father, bring these thoughts near and dear to our hearts in the midst of a confused and broken world and help us always to sing all hail the power of Jesus' name. In Christ's name we pray, amen.